In the Old Testament, there are many prophecies about the Messiah who was to come. They come together to paint a picture of the Savior King who would save the people of Israel from all of their distresses. These prophecies were given over the course of thousands of years, and those who at first received them had to wait a very long time, at least as we consider things, for their fulfillment of these promises. So think about it. Adam and Eve received the first promise of a Savior, and yet they died long before receiving the fulfillment of that promise. Abraham received even better promises than they did, and yet he too died. Isaac inherited those promises from his father Abraham, but then he died. Then Jacob died. Moses led God's people out of slavery in Egypt, but then Moses died without even getting to enter the promised land. Several hundred years after that, King David was promised an everlasting kingdom, but then David died. After David, God sent many more prophets who not only added more promises from the Lord, but who often simply reminded God's people of all the promises the Lord had already made to them. And they desperately needed those reminders. One of the prophets God sent to remind his people of his promises was the prophet Micah. He also prophesied of the coming Messiah, and we always read one of Micah's prophecies during Advent. We're going to take a closer look at that prophecy this evening because we too need reminders of God's good promises, just like the people of Israel did. So this is from Micah 5. This is the first four verses and the beginning of the fifth verse. It says, Now muster yourself in troops, daughter of troops. They have laid siege against us. With a rod they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has borne a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, And they will remain, because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. This is the word of the Lord. The people of God were in need of a reminder at this time in Israel's history. So for one, this was because of their own weakness of faith and their propensity to turn away from God and his commandments. Yet again, the people had fallen into corruption and idolatry at the time of Micah. They also needed a reminder of God's promises to David because things were looking pretty dismal for Israel and for Judah. King David reigned in the time around 1000 BC, and Micah prophesied about 300 years later, around 700 BC. Now, in in the intervening 300 years, the kingdom had split in two, Wicked king after wicked king ruled in both kingdoms. There were devastating wars, both foreign and civil. And about 40 years before Micah's ministry, the Assyrians had set to work destroying, uprooting, and taking captive the northern kingdom of Israel. Things were terrible. And both the kings and the people of Israel and Judah would have been wondering at this time, at the time of Micah, so... What about those promises to David? 
What about that whole everlasting kingdom thing? This doesn't look like it's coming about, Lord. But God in His kindness and tolerance gave His people hope in the midst of their distress. And that's what we have in Micah 5. Mixed in with prophecies of captivity and destruction and oppression, we get the promise of a righteous ruler. If you think about it, that's a lot like what happened in the Garden of Eden when in the midst of God's pronouncement of curse, Adam and Eve received a glimmer of hope presented in the son of Eve who would crush the serpent's head. Now there's a lot in this prophecy in Micah, but we're going to focus on verse 2. We're going to start with the end of that verse. I think most of us have the first part kind of stuck in our heads to some degree. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, blah, 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 blah. Then it maybe just kind of fades out and we don't really remember what comes next. But this prophecy has some cosmic theology in it. We see this in the second half of verse 2. It says, His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. This passage in Micah points forward. We usually read it because it points forward to Christ's humility that he came to Bethlehem, which is what Christmas is all about. Christ humbling himself by becoming one of us. But Christ's humility only matters in light of his unsurpassable glory. And Jesus' glory is captured briefly here in Micah with this statement of Christ's eternity and power. His goings forth, now imagine a king marching out in battle, going forth, are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Jesus Christ is eternal. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Apostle Paul expounds on this truth about Christ in Colossians chapter 1. If we can put that up there. This is what it says. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything." For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, whether things on earth or in heaven. Jesus Christ is the firstborn of all creation. By Him, all things were created. Now normally when we think of creation, we think of nature, right? You hear the word creation and you think... All nature around me rings. Things like the sun, the moon, the stars, the wind and the rain. These are things that are completely out of our control. Think about the weather. It's so transcendently beyond our control that we can barely even predict it. Just yesterday, I was trying to make plans for our day based on the weather. But as I'm sure you've experienced before, even with our meteorological technology that we have today, It was changing by the minute when the rain was going to stop so that we could go to the zoo. But think about this. Jesus Christ commands the wind and the waves. In Him, all things hold together. 
That is marvelous. But did you notice that when this passage in Colossians we just read says all things were created through Christ and for Him, it doesn't actually focus very much on nature. Instead, the Apostle Paul talks about thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities. What's going on there? Well, when we read the account of Jesus' birth in Luke 2, there's this really minor character, okay? You might not even notice him if you read it too fast, and he really is pretty insignificant. His name was Caesar Augustus. You've maybe heard of him. Caesar Augustus militarily, politically, and administratively ruled over a vast empire covering almost the entirety of Europe and North Africa, surrounding the Mediterranean Sea and extending into Asia, an area inhabited by around 45 million people at the time. This empire endured for hundreds of years, and Augustus' very name would go on to be used to name other emperors and kings the whole world over for generations to come. Now, Augustus was a proud man, full of his own greatness. And in order that the world would remember him for generations to come, he had inscribed to himself a monumental list of the impressive things he accomplished in his life. Okay, this is called the deeds of the divine Augustus. That's what it said, okay? Penned by his own hand. I'm going to read a couple short excerpts from the deeds of the divine Augustus. This is how it starts. When only 19 years old, I initiated and funded an army by which I won liberty for the Republic when it was bullied by a faction. Because of this, the Senate, with honor-bestowing resolutions, added me to its roles, granting both the right to vote as a consul and the office of proprietor over soldiers. I often waged war, civil and foreign, on the earth and sea, in the whole wide world, and as victor I spared all the citizens who sought pardon. As for foreign nations, those which I was able to safely forgive, I preferred to preserve than to destroy. About 500,000 Roman citizens were sworn to me. I led something more than 300,000 of them into colonies, and I returned them to their cities after their stipend had been earned, and I assigned all of them fields or gave them money for their military service. I restored peace to the sea from pirates. In that slave war, I handed over to their masters for the infliction of punishments about 30,000 captured who had fled their masters and taken up arms against the state. All Italy swore allegiance to me voluntarily and demanded me as leader of the war which I won at Actium. The provinces of Gaul, Spain, Africa, Sicily, and Sardinia swore the same allegiance, and those who then fought under my standard were more than 700 senators, among whom 83 were made consuls, either before or after, up to the day this was written, and about 170 were made priests. Well, we know what Caesar Augustus thought of himself. But why so much about Augustus? Why do I bother reading this? Well, I want us to feel the magnitude of his accomplishments so that we can be impressed for a moment, but only so that we can then remember Caesar Augustus is dead and gone. Which is to say, in the grand scheme of things, Caesar Augustus was just a drop from a bucket. He was a speck of dust on the scales of history. Those are the words of Isaiah. Caesar Augustus is just one of those rulers, those authorities, who was created for the same reason that all things exist, to bring glory to Jesus Christ. In particular, God used Augustus to establish and maintain a sprawling and formidable empire so that 
Jesus Christ could then use that empire to advance his own kingdom, which still remains and continues to grow today, 2,000 years later, even though Caesar and the Roman Empire have been dead and gone for centuries. Jesus is alive and reigning today. In the history of Christ and his kingdom, Caesar Augustus is just a minor character. Now, one question we're meant to ask, but that we might not because we are so familiar with the Christmas story, is this. If Christ is so magnificent, then why was he born in Bethlehem? Now, we just take it for granted he was born in Bethlehem. Of course he was. Now, obviously, it was to fulfill this prophecy from Micah, but it's not as if God was scrambling to make all the details fall into place when the time finally rolled around for Jesus Christ to be born. God wasn't reading the Bible one day and came across this old passage in Micah. Ah, out of Bethlehem? How am I going to make this work? No, Christ was born in Bethlehem on purpose. And it was for this excellent reason. Jesus Christ is magnified in weakness. 1 Corinthians 1.27 says, God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. Caesar Augustus was created to be just one of the strong things that would be put to shame by the weak, to the praise and glory of Jesus Christ. So God used one of Augustus's less significant acts, he doesn't even mention it in his list of divine deeds, that is the calling of a census to raise some funds for the expansion of his worldly domain, God used that to bring a lowly carpenter and his bride-to-be to the lowly town of Bethlehem. And this was to be Christ's glory, because Bethlehem was nothing. It was hardly a blip on the map. This verse in Micah can be translated as, but as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the thousands of Judah. In the time of Micah's writing, the people of Israel would have been numbered in groups of a thousand and divided into districts based on the population of a thousand men. But Bethlehem apparently didn't even have a thousand men. In other words, it wasn't even big enough to make up its own district. Bethlehem was nothing. And this was to be Christ's glory. Because he wasn't born in a place that he could get glory from. He wasn't born in Rome. He couldn't lay claim to any earthly kingship that would be great in the eyes of the world. He derived no strength or glory from any human ruler or royal line or dynasty. Now, he was of the line of David, but he didn't even come from David's strength in Jerusalem, the city of the great king. No, Christ went all the way back to David's humility, to Bethlehem, a town of shepherds and podunk families. Christ got no glory from the town he was born in. And this is glorious because it makes it abundantly clear that the glory is his to bestow. He himself said, I do not receive glory from men. God's grace and power are magnified when man's power and authority are put to shame. And this bears on more than just the worldly weakness of cities and kingdoms and towns. Jesus didn't come just to be magnified in small towns and insignificant backwoods blue-collar families. Jesus came to be magnified in you and me. He came to be magnified in those who are helpless, those who are needy, and those who are weak. And so the question is, do you glory in your weakness? That may seem like a funny question, but here's what the Apostle Paul said after he had asked God to take away his weakness. Listen to this. 
He's just told us that he prayed three times that God would take away whatever his affliction was. Can we put 2 Corinthians up there? And he said to me, the Lord, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. That's what God said. Then Paul says, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And we don't like it when we're sick, we're tired, we're underappreciated, we're slighted, we're confused, we're bedridden, we're overwhelmed, we're insulted. We're frustrated in our plans. We're humbled in any other way. These things all make us feel vulnerable. And we don't like being reminded of our weaknesses and shortcomings. We get disappointed in ourselves and depressed because we didn't live up to our own expectations or someone else's. We are easily convinced that we really can produce strength and righteousness from within ourselves and we get disappointed whenever we're reminded that that's not the case. We want to be strong. We want to be capable. We want to be in control. And this is often simply because we want recognition. We want glory. But Jesus says He is most glorified in our weakness. God says His power is perfected in weakness. It's in our weaknesses that Christ meets us as Savior and healer and friend. Which means whenever we strive to hide all weakness, to pretend like we don't have any sin, and to gain the glory that comes from men, whenever you do these things, you're running away from Jesus Christ. You're making yourself like a proud dead Caesar, exalted in your own eyes, but forsaking the humble Christ. When we did international ministry in Bloomington, one of our Chinese students, a young woman named Lily, became a Christian. Do you know what it was that she felt the when it was she felt the Holy Spirit changed something in her heart? It was while she and her housemates were meeting together and confessing sin to one another. In the midst of that confession of sin and weakness, she saw Christ's grace for her opened up. Isn't that beautiful? Very much what Pastor Belcher was preaching to us this morning. Evangelism itself is often most effective when it involves a confession of our own weakness to someone else, particularly a confession of our sin and guilt. It's through such a confession that we confess our need of a Savior. Christ is all-glorious in creation. He's all-glorious when it comes to history and God's sovereign direction of kings and empires and rulers and authorities. But most of all, Christ is all-glorious in the salvation of souls. This is how Colossians 1 goes on. We read this, but for it was the Father's... Can we put that up there? 1, 19 and 20. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven having made peace through the blood of His cross. This talk of peace should sound familiar. Do you remember how our passage from Micah ended? This one will be our peace. 
Jesus Christ himself is the peace of his people. In other words, he is the greatest good we can have. And if we have him, everything else fades into the background. It's true that he'll do lots of great things for us and give us many good gifts in this life. He'll feed us. He'll comfort us. He'll even heal many of our sicknesses. And yet sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes the sickness continues. Sometimes the attacks from your friends and family continue. Sometimes you lose your job. What then? Has Christ forsaken you? No, because even in the midst of these trials, he still abundantly supplies us with himself. And he tells us that it is in the midst of these weaknesses and afflictions that his grace is made most evident. And he receives more glory in us when we face sickness, persecution, and death while clinging to him. In so doing, we demonstrate to the world that Jesus Christ is worthy. Because even when we have lost everything and have nothing in this life, if we proclaim that having Him is enough, that proclaims the glory of Jesus Christ. This one will be our peace. Let me read this last couple of verses from Micah, and then we'll pray and sing. Listen to this wonderful promise of who Jesus Christ will be to His people. And this is something we still have to look forward to. He will arise and shepherd His flock. He's doing it now among us, okay? But it's also a a future reality that we are waiting to have the fullness of. He will arise and shepherd His flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord His God. And they will remain because at that time, who will be great? He, Christ, will be great. To the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace.